tuning in to the 151st episode of Barbershop Sports Talk with me, your host, Daryl D. Lane, as always. Thank you for tuning in, whether it be via Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio. Being recorded from Buffalo, New York on a Wednesday, the night before the draft. Going to have Kenny Simon, scouting expert for 247 Sports. He has his big board. He has finished his big board. Uh, it's a little overwhelming. Uh, I just looked on it on Google Sheets, on uh, on spreadsheets, and I had to take some time to take it all in. So a lot of good information. We're going to have a great interview, some great content with Kenny coming up in about 10 to 15 minutes. But first, what I want to talk about, uh, just to go to basketball really quickly before we get to the draft, I want to talk about the Michael Jordan documentary. And the reason I did was because I didn't really get to give my piece in when I had uh, Zach Weatherford on the show on Monday, and I kind of want to give my two th- thoughts on, uh, my, my two cents about the documentary, because I think this is really interesting. Obviously, in episode one and episode two of the documentary, Jerry Krause, the Bulls GM, was painted as the villain, the bad guy, the monster in the room, to why the Bulls dynasty broke up. But I And I was thinking about this, and at first I went with that too, and I was like, it's Jerry's fault. But, but here's what I would pose to you. Yes, if we are playing the blame game and we're splitting up a pie of percentages, who is most at fault for the Bulls dynasty? You could pit Jerry Krause at one. But to me, I think just by solely saying it's Jerry, Jerry, Jerry Krause, the fat chubby dude who, who never played basketball and who was a, ba- a low-level baseball scout, he's the easy guy to blame in all of this. There's a couple other things we can blame. It, it takes more than one man one person to end a dynasty like the Chicago Bulls that won six championships. It takes Jerry Reinsdorf, uh, who allowed Jerry Krause and empowered Jerry Krause to do whatever he wanted to. And I, I do want to talk about some of the guys that don't get criticized as much because Jerry Reinsdorf gets his share of criticism from people, but but I want to go to the other, the players and the coaches because this is interesting. Phil Jackson. I love Phil. You can make an argument. Phil Jackson is the greatest coach ever. But I think most people would say Phil is not the easiest guy to deal with on a consistent basis. There's a reason why he left the Los Angeles Lakers. Uh, Jerry Buss's son, Jim Buss, did not like him. That is why he left after, in 2011, they never got along. Also, him and Jerry West didn't get along. That's part of the reason why Jerry West left the Lakers organization. Jerry West and Phil Jackson did not see the eye to eye. Also, we can see, maybe Phil was giving managerial advice. We've seen what Phil did when he was the GM of the New York Knicks and kind of how aloof Phil could be. For God's sake, Phil Jackson wrote a, wrote a book dissing Kobe Bryant as he went out the door when the Kobe and Shaq thing was going on. So, Phil is not always the most innocent guy. I know he's... Everybody says his parents were Pentecostal ministers. He lives in Montana. He's the Zen master. So we can't just blame Phil because you want, we can't just blame Krause. We have to put some blame on Phil because you want to know what? You all work with people you don't necessarily like. But Phil, you don't need to belittle them. The best thing is you don't belittle your boss, you know, the man that hired you and tell the person that literally hired you, you know nothing, right? (laughs) 
Else that's a little counterproductive because he had to know something because he decided Phil was the right man to coach Michael Jordan. Then it gets to Michael Jordan, the hero of the documentary. Now, Michael is the, dry, the biggest reason why they were a dynasty. But Michael, and, and this is probably what made him great, and I was talking to my dad about this too, he, he did not vouch for Scottie Pippen when Scottie Pippen was going with, through his ordeal with Bulls management, which in turn allowed Scottie to get pissed off and have decide to wait the whole summer, not tell anybody that he has an injury, and then have, it, have an injury before the season starts to kind of hurt the Bulls. Part of that's on Michael Jordan. And then Michael Jordan's saying, that was selfish for Scotty to do. Well, Michael, you're, you can't really call people selfish because you're the billionaire who won't pick up the tab for his friends when you guys all go out to dinner. So Michael's selfishness and a little bit of his ego is a reason why a guy like Scottie Pippen's like, you know what? F all this. If nobody cares about me, nobody wants to talk about what I do for this team, how about I just say F you to all you guys, get the finger to all you guys, and let you all go on your way. And it was wrong for Scotty to do that. But Scotty still did it, and that's where I get into my criticism of Scotty Pippen. Right? He's the one who signed the contract. I know he signed a seven-year, $18 million contract. Scotty's the one who signed it. And Jerry Reinsdorf, the Bulls owner, said, Scotty, don't sign this deal, because if you do, you can't renegotiate. Now, was that wrong for Jerry Reinsdorf to not allow Scotty to negotiate? Of course it was. But then again, Scotty put his name on the paper and signed it at ink, and it's binding. It's crazy. People always talk about, you know, how a marriage ends, how a relationship ends. It takes two, it takes multiple people to end something, right? It's not just... It's, 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 it's not just the, the little chubby guy, Jerry. It's not just Jerry. R Reinsdorf has his part in it. Jordan has his part in it. And Pippen has his part in it. And by the way, maybe it wouldn't have worked. Right? If you have Krause too, all, all four of them. Because you want to know what? Then there's another guy, Dennis Rodman, who I haven't mentioned. And I believe the third doc that will air on Sunday is going to focus on him. Dennis Rodman's also the guy that is a little out there and is right now hanging with Kim Jong-un, right? right. Th that's what he's got to known for right now. So there are a lot of different personalities and people in the Bulls organization that could have resulted in this whole thing breaking up. It's just not one person. Michael never came up, as far as we know, to Jerry Reinsdorf and said, hey, Krause doesn't know what the hell he's doing. Get rid of him. Jordan never took that initiative when as much power as he had at the time, he might have been able to. Remember, right? You know, that everybody's like, well, why did he cheat on me? Why did he cheat on me? Well, when you were yelling at him, you said, hey, how about you go cheat on? How about you go find somebody else? And they actually did. Well, come on. We're not friends anymore. You don't hang out with me anymore. Well, you never call. It takes two to create something. It takes multiple people to create something. And it takes multiple people to end something. That's just the way it works. Now, I also do want to mention this because of how popular Michael Jordan is. And obviously, I was not alive when Michael Jordan was playing and at his apex, right? I was born in 98. So really, and it's funny when you think about it, when I was born in July, Michael's ending the season in like June, right? So I was not even born yet when he hit when he hits the shot, the final pose against Utah. I was not even born yet. My mom was pregnant with me at that time. Yeah, because it was only a couple months. So I, 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 I'm, I'm a fetus, right? <laughs> So, 
I never saw Michael play, but you can see kind of the aura around him, and I think it's interesting because I, we talk a lot about how popular guys, we see how Kobe, when Kobe Bryant died, how popular Kobe was. We see how popular LeBron James is. And it's like Michael Jordan is that, but to a whole nother level. And I, I remember this. My sophomore year of college, I had a roommate, uh, Shuhei, who was from Japan. And I would always ask him because he didn't know a lot about American sports. I was like, so you know who LeBron is? And he would tell me, no. There are people in this world who don't know who LeBron James is. He didn't know who Kobe was. He didn't know who Kevin Durant is. I, I, I went down the list. I said Carmelo Anthony. I said Chris Paul. Tried to name every basketball player I could that, that was famous. He said, no, 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 no. I said Magic Johnson. I said Kareem. He said, no, 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 no. Then I asked him, and obviously he didn't know football players like Tom Brady. He only knew a couple of baseball players like uh, uh, Shuhei Ontani, the Angels and Angels. He plays both ways for the Angels. And uh, Tanaka, who used to play for the Yankees. Those were only Japanese baseball, and they were Japanese baseball players, and he's from Japan. But he, he knew one basketball player. When I said Michael Jordan, he's like, oh, the basketball player. And you want to know why people from different countries, everybody around the world knows who Michael Jordan is? The Jordan brand, the Jordan shoes, Nike. Even if you never saw him play, which most people probably did, you never heard of the name, you probably know the Jordan just for the Jordan shoes. And you can pick two to two, that's the basketball player. And it's even crazier when you look at how popular he was because I want to I look at this because I, I think numbers are always important to look at. LeBron has been in the finals eight years, has nine total trips. And I just want to show you the finals ratings. So in 2018, when he's in the finals against the Warriors, 17 million people watched. The next year, Warriors, 11 million people in total watched. The next year, about 11. The, the next year, 11. Uh, we're going down. 9 million, 10 million. 10 million, 10 million. And then in 2007, uh, pitiful 6 million. So... LeBron's only getting over 17 million people. And excuse me, it wasn't 17, it was 10 million. It was 10 million. So he hasn't, he's only gotten, the highest rating he's ever gotten in the finals is 11.6 million. 11.6 million watched the Cavs versus Warriors in, in 2015. LeBron's highest rated finals, television-wise. Now, I'm just going to show you Michael Jordan's, right? So we've we've already established LeBron James, his highest rated finals is 11.6 million people. Let's look at Michael Jordan, 1998. 18.7 million people watched the Jazz versus the Bulls in 98. Let's go to 97, Jazz versus Bulls, 16.8 million. Let's go to 1996, Bulls versus the Seattle Superhonics, Supersonics, 16.7. Then let's go to the first three, Pete. 93, 18 million. 92, 14 million. 91, 16 million. Every single one of Michael Jordan's NBA Finals was rated higher than every single one of LeBron James's Finals. Because Michael was just that much more popular. For God's sake, he hasn't played, like we said, he hasn't played in about two decades. And we have... Millions of people going to watch his documentary. That just shows you the power of Michael Jordan. Now, cut him next. That's the break on Barbershop Sports Talk. I'm going to have Kenny Sim on the show. And what we're going to do is 
we're going to go over his big board and we're going to talk about a couple NFL draft rumors and get you all caught up and all set for the upcoming NFL draft. Coming up next after the break on Barbershop Sports Talk. Oh, we're back with the Barbershop Sports Talk, and we have my man, Kenny Simon. He's a draft scouting expert, loves it, does it for 247 Sports. How you doing, Kenny? Good, man. Thanks for having me back on again. Uh, it's Christmas Eve tonight, so draft tomorrow and stuff like that, and always getting ready for just like the players and then... Uh, like above all other things too, like round one is just the theater and the drama and guys sliding and falling and the rumors like that. It's just it's, it's just great theater and I think tomorrow I think it might set a record for the biggest ratings for a draft. Um, looking forward to it. A lot of good content. A lot of people are gonna be watching with it because it's like the first first, you know, big sports thing since sports shut down. So, um, yeah, it's gonna be great. Just a great three three day event. I'll probably be watching all 256 picks, so uh, it'll be good. Now, first, I'm just going to talk to you about some rumors, and I, and I just want to know what you think about it, how much validity do you see to each rumor. The first rumor I got for you, are the Cincinnati Bengals going to pull off what we don't think they're going to do and trade away the first overall pick to get more picks and forego the right to get Joe Burrow? Right, so um, I don't think they will. I think that I, I think it's pretty much um, locked in. Uh, I don't really know where a lot of this, where like um, you know, you hear like Joe Burrow does he want to play for Cincinnati? At least publicly, he's always said that he's willing to go to Cincinnati. Uh, I don't think it's coming from his camp. It's probably coming from elsewhere. And then you have um, you could max out. I think three hours of FaceTime per week with a prospect for the draft uh, during this virtual period, and the Bengals have been meeting with Joe Burrow three hours every single week for the last five weeks. So I think they're pretty much honing in on him, and uh, probably going over some really high-level brief stuff on um, kind of how their offense is going to look this year coming up. So um, I really don't see that happening. I think Joe Burrow is pretty much locked in to Cincinnati, and he enters in a uh, pretty good quarterback division, and I don't know, probably the second or third toughest division in football, so uh, he's got his work cut out for him, but the good quarterback division he's entering into. So my next one for you, there's a lot of talk, and we did this in our mock draft, we had Tristan Wirfs going to the New York Giants, but there's a lot of talk that their guy is Isaiah Simmons linebacker out of Clemson and that they're really high on him and because really when we think of the Giants we think that what they really need is a tackle do you, what do you think are the chances that they would forego drafting an offensive tackle to get a hold of Isaiah Simmons so I think it's about I think it's about 50-50 so Dave Gettleman has never traded down I don't think they're going to trade down I think they're going to end up making the pick at four and so um 
Simmons is definitely in play. Personally, that'd be my pick. I think he'd be a really good asset to that uh, defense. That defense is lacking edge rushers, lacking linebackers. Uh, it could cover up a lot of things. And we've talked about uh, in great detail during past episodes about um, what he could do in the NFC East. But I, I think I think what I'm hearing is they're probably going to go with a tackle. So um, I think Dave Gettleman is going to go with that offensive line that he likes. And so I think a link here is going with Cedric Wills, the linebacker out of or, or the uh, tackle out of Alabama, uh, with that Joe Judge, Nick Saban connection. Um, really with like the lack of faith or with, with the lack of meetings and pro days and stuff, really sticking with connections and who you know. Uh, so that's something that I've been seeing a lot of. So I think Wills is probably the best best to go there. I think he's the odds on favorite. And then Simmons is probably, you know, right behind him, one, two. So that's going to be interesting to see if they go Wills or uh, Simmons. Now, next what I got for you is, in our mock draft, I had the Cowboys getting uh, Antoine Winfield safety out of Michigan, and there's a report that potentially what the Cowboys are going to do, because also they lost Byron Jones, so they need secondary help, right? The Cowboys need secondary help. But, they did lose Travis Frederick, an all-pro center, to retirement this offseason. So, what are the chances that they draft Caesar Roots center out of Michigan? With their first it's overall. Something I'm kind of, yeah, yep, 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 absolutely. It's something I've been pondering, and when I'm uh, looking at my mock draft, my mock draft contest, um, that is something to be considered. I think, I think ultimately, I think what the Cowboys are going to do, I think, is they're going to stick with uh, somewhere in the secondary, whether they go with maybe like a flashy pick, like a Grant Delphi, Xavier McKinney, or. Um, elsewhere, but I, I, I don't see them going center. I do know that you are correct with the loss of Frederick. They do need to bolster that a little bit. Um, Cesar Ruiz is more of like a second-round grade I got on him. I don't. I think that'd be a little bit of a reach to go with him at pick 17. I know uh, in 2014 they went Zach Martin, um, really good player, at like pick 15, 15 around there. Um, he's a way better player than Caesar Ruiz, so I think that's a little bit of a, a little bit uh, too rich for Ruiz. They might be thinking if he's there in round two or um, looking to go elsewhere with one of a, a lower-rated prospect at center or maybe in-house there. So I don't see that match. I, I, I just think it's a little bit too rich for Ruiz at 17. Now, with Tom Brady going to Tampa Bay, the Patriots don't have a, what we would call, quarterback of the future right now. They have Brian Hoyer on their roster. And it's not like, you know, the Patriots, that they're just going to wait till the sixth round and find an all-time great again. I mean, I mean, who could do that? Only but Bill Belichick, right? But reportedly, they like Justin Herbert, but enough to trade up for him. Uh, is what a rival GM told NBC Sports, Peter King. Now, what I do want to ask you about this is, what are the chances that the Patriots trade up to get a quarterback? It doesn't even have to be Herbert. Like, there there are a couple rumors that it could be, that they like him. But even if it's a Tua or a Burrow, what are the chances that we see New England trade up in the draft to get a franchise quarterback? Moderate surprising. 
but probably unlikely. So what I think you might see is, um, wouldn't be surprising if that happens. I think the best chance to trade up for a quarterback is if a guy's like a like a if a Tua slips or a Jordan Love falls a little bit. If you start getting into that in that fifteen range and that teen range, um, where you have you know you can make a move with Dallas, you can make a move with um, you know maybe like a team like. Like if the Cleveland Browns trade down to 15 or 16, maybe a second trade down from there, uh, getting up somewhere into right before pick 20, I think that's the type of jump that you would see. I don't think they have enough draft capital to make a move, a really steep move um, from 23 into the top 10. Um, Ultimately, I think what they could do is they do have a weak quarterback room I think their best chance of getting a quarterback might be trying to try maybe in round two to get a guy like a Jake Fromm or a Jalen Hurts. I think you can see kind of what the athleticism of a Lamar Jackson did if you kind of build things around Lamar Jackson, potentially doing that with like a Jalen Hurts maybe. Um, or um, a typical Patriots pick could be like a Jake Fromm. So not a lot of arm talent like Tom Brady, but – I was looking closely at Jake Fromm, and I do think he's a more of a backup, like a third-round player. But, I mean, three-year starter, over 40 starts, the key number we talked about. Uh, I think like a four-to-one touchdown to interception ratio in his career at Georgia. You know, went to the SEC title game, had that pedigree of success. You could see them maybe doing a, a, like a smaller move, kind of like a middle-tier QB if they draft. But... Um, I would probably lean on the end of them not trading up for a quarterback, though. Okay, now with the New York Jets, obviously offensive tackle seems like the logical choice, but there are rumors that maybe that they might get a wide receiver, and apparently they are enamored with the speed and athleticism of Henry Ruggs. What are the chances that the New York Jets decide to, instead of find that guy to protect Sam Donald, instead they find a guy that Sam Donald can throw the ball to. What are the chances that happens? Yeah, that's about 50-50, and that's going to be really, really um, interesting to see what Joe Douglas is going to do there. So Joe Douglas came from uh, Philadelphia with Howie Roseman, where they really value, you know, line play and quarterback play. This is really going to be about a 50-50, so... um, and, and, and it's interesting because they're right in the tier where I think you're going to see those top three wide receivers, Ruggs, Lamb, Judy. There's, um, and then you have the Jets, the Raiders, the 49ers, and the Broncos. Four teams for those top three players. It's going to be interesting to see which of those teams get those players right around there. Um, I think it's about 50-50 with the Jets, though. So, yes, they do need a big play wide receiver. All those wide receivers would be good um, for Sam Darnold, but their offensive line is also terrible as well. And, you know, when you're on a bad team um, at pick 11, that's kind of, I see it as a little bit of a, a wasted asset to take a big, flashy receiver. doesn't matter if you can run down, down the field if you can't get in the ball with the quarterback on his back always. So I think I'm probably going to have an, and say I think there's a better chance Joe Douglas might ultimately go with a um, an offensive tackle in this play and try to come back in round two with the wide receiver. Although you could see them go with uh, 
a wide receiver like a Ruggs, like you said, and then tackle is rich enough to come back with that in round two. If you want to go like a Henry Ruggs and like a Josh Jones, Edward Cleveland type, um, that's going to be interesting to see what the Jets do. I think it's about 50-50, though, for that rumor. Now, the New Orleans Saints, they have a 41-year-old quarterback in Drew Brees, and Taysom Hill, their backup QB, is on a one-year deal. Obviously, Teddy Bridgewater left in the offseason to the Carolina Panthers. What are the chances the Saints draft a backup quarterback or another young quarterback to have in there? Yeah, I think there's a strong possibility that that happens. Um, with, a, with, with a team that's ready to win the Super Bowl right now, there's not a lot of holes on that roster. But, you know, Tampa Bay quickly coming up um, from behind them, making a run like that. So in that Super Bowl window, I, I think they should be using that 24th pick to get some sort of impact player to help them out. I know we mocked them with Patrick Queen, Kenneth Murray, you know, some, someone, a non-QB to do that. But um, they are going to need a quarterback in the wings to groom like a true, like a non-gimmick type. So I think at some point in the draft, you'll see them go with a QB. So um, like a round three player, like a guy that, you know, that they spent some time on, James Morgan from FIU, getting some quiet buzz uh, and from Easton Hurts, kind of that type of player in round two or round three. So it would be beneficial for them to kind of bring up the next guy with Teddy Bridgewater leaving um, and kind of start to develop another QB for the next one or two years. Now with the Miami Dolphins, apparently they have done a lot of work on quarterback Justin Herbert. We know that they have been linked to two attack Valoa, but Justin Herbert's in the mix too. The Dolphins, could they really, Kenny, grab Justin Herbert over two attack Valoa? Yeah, I think, I, I think that's what you're hearing more and more of, um, and I think that's something that is a strong possibility of happening. So strong, I'd almost say, I, I, I think with the betting odds, you would have to say Herbert has a better chance of going at five to the Dolphins than Tua. I know it's kind of split in that building 50-50 uh, with, with proponents for each QB. It's really going to come down to, and, and no one knows this, it, it, it's really going to come down to uh, the medical in the building for the Dolphins. If they get a, they get a good bill of health and say, you know, maybe, you know, this guy's fully cleared. It's not something that's going to come back on and on with this hip, green light, they could take them. If it's something that they're uncomfortable with, you know, you can see them thinking about we could get a guy with similar upside to Tua and a guy who's going to be healthy and go with Herbert. I think Herbert has a better chance of going there, and I think that's a mistake for the for the Miami Dolphins. If you watch both QBs during the year, you would never say in any in any realm of what you're watching, you know, this Justin Herbert guy, he's right up there with Tua this year. Just just watching him play. You know, just everything they do on the field. He, it, it's really Joe Burrow, Tua, and Herbert, all same talent level, really good pro, pro, pro prospects. You you would never say that. I think that's a little bit of a, a leap to make that move to Justin Herbert at five there. So, um, really going to come down to the medical to see what happens there. 
Now, I'm just going to ask you these really quick, just rapid fire, and I just want your opinion. Indianapolis okay. Colts, will they draft a quarterback? Yeah. Pittsburgh Steelers, will they draft a quarterback? If they do, it's just going to be a developmental guy, not the kind of piss off Big Ben. So you think the Colts will draft somebody real? Like, like I do think so, yeah. Yes, 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 I do. And will the Packers draft a quarterback? Yeah, I'm going to say they will, too. Somebody real, or, or is it a more of a camp guy? I think it's more of a camp guy. I I, I, I don't see them, you know, making a move up to uh, Jordan Love or Jalen Hurts or from like that. I think there's, um, that's not like a, like a, a 49er-type roster where they have that luxury of taking a QB at pick 30 and spending a lot of capital on that. They they need some guys on that team to contribute. So I see it more as like a camp guy, a developmental guy. Okay, Kenny. Now we're going to take a quick break and cut them next after the break on Barbershop Sports Talk. We're going to break down your big board. Kenny, are you ready for that? No, I'm very ready for it. I've been looking at this for several days now, so yeah. Kind of next after the break on Barbershop Sports Talk. Sports Talk. We still have Kenny Sim with us. It's time. Big board. Draft time. The filet mignon. The Mona Lisa. You sent me the spreadsheets. I have it in front of me. So here's the first thing. And I I want you to kind of explain to everybody your number system because you have players. Your highest prospect is Chase Young, who is at 7.9, I believe. But but your highest yep. is 9 to 8 to 7 to 6. Just explain to people out there how you're doing it and why there's numbers. Yeah, so this is um, this is something NFL teams do. This is um, having some sort of like, a, like a, a grading scale to grade the player. So what exactly... So, so when you say, like, oh, he's a first-round talent, what does that exactly mean? So put it into words. So what I did is I kind of went through um, a numbering system I picked up several years ago, and it looked it looked valid. Uh, I think I think uh, a longtime GM who wrote for, like, Pro Football Weekly, Jerry Angelo, had it. Um, and so kind of what you see here is you have, a, like, a, like, a grading scale, like, like a nine. A nine is that perfect prospect. So I had it as Andrew Luck as the highest guy I ever graded, uh, like a John Elway. And and that's truly generational. What generational means is over a generation. You know, we use that word so loosely anymore. So that's like a, a prospect over like a 30-year span. So you'll rarely see that. And then you have like an eight. So, so an eight is like a guy, probably the top prospect at his position over – a five-year span. He'll he'll be a top five pick in any draft. And and what I like to do is I use um I use a vertical board. So I go more on um 
looking at or stacking the players by position. So there's premium positions. There's just more positions that have an impact in other positions. So kind of like the three big ones that are add the most value, add the most wins, is QB pass rusher, argument two for cornerback. So those are the premium spots with high level of talent there. So that's like a like an eight. So that's like a Miles Garrett was an eight, a Chase Young, slightly below him just because he didn't test. So I, I, I would prefer to have like a, like a 40 and all those combine things to stack up with Garrett. Um, so Young's at like, like a 7.9. Um, and then you kind of move down to um, those are like top ten players in any draft, and then you have like a like a at at the end of a seven, uh, like a seven point oh. That's your um, a guy that you think is going to be a top fifteen player, probably a top twenty player in the NFL when he reaches his prime. Um, so guys like over the years we talked about like a like a Jalen Ramsey, a Clowney, a Saquon Barkley, guys like that. Then you have a six point eight to a six point nine. So that is. Uh, like a guy that's probably going to go in the middle of round one. So what is that? That's a rookie who has a chance to make a Pro Bowl, like a Marcus Lattimore or Denzel Ward. Um, probably a top 15 to 25 player in every single draft. And um, kind of like a solid player that you build your core around. 6.6 to 6.7, that's your late first, early second round. So 6.7 kind of like that right at the turn to round one to round two. 6.6, a solid round two player. That's a good player on elite units. Um, that's a guy that you definitely want to build around and think, you know, after the end of his contract, um, he has a chance to get a second contract with the team that drafted him. Then you move down, just down the ranks of 6.5. That's a round three player. What are you looking for when you say, oh, he's a round three player? I kind of defined it as a guy that's uh, a year one starter on a weak unit, on a weak team, and a guy that, you know, by year two could be a starter in the NFL. That's a round three player. And then you get down to about 6.4. That's a round four to round five player. What I define as 6.4 is um, kind of a backup player, a kind of a guy in a rotation, that number four receiver on the roster, that number three or four pass rusher if a team has four defensive ends, mid-round pick, rotation player, uh, potential starter down the road, a guy that you win with. And then you get down to a 6.3. That's like a round six player. So kind of like when you get to round six and round seven, all you want to get in a guy is, you know, this is a directable player, he could be a backup, a core player on our special team, and he could get us out of a pinch and be a starter, like if we have to just plug him in for a game or two. Not a lot of upside, like a round four, round five guy, uh, kind of throwing a dart at the wall, wall at that point. So that's kind of the grade system all the way down the line, and then, of course, um, in, in, in great detail if you wanted to do it, uh, when a guy goes in the NFL undrafted, he's like a 6.2, practice squad player undrafted, bounce around the league. Remember, NFL players, average average careers, only three years. So um, you get those kind of players. So that's kind of just a numeric grading system. Um, I like it. It's logical. It flows well. It has positional value. Um, and you could kind of just define, you know, define your thing. So, like, what is a round two QB? What is a round one wide receiver? What's that defined as? And kind of put some, uh, some, you know, some, some meat, some details to those terms. Okay, so by this logic, and by the way you're grading it, for example, let's use uh, Quentin Nelson, uh, who was a guard out of Notre Dame a couple of years ago. Yep. He was probably one of the best guard prospects you've seen in years, I'm assuming. 
but he would not be a nine right on the Andrew Luck scale because he's a guard and your and your board values positional value, right? Right. I think if I remember that when we had the best of decade, Clinton Nelson, I think he was like a seven point five. So he's not that eight, he's not that premium position, but he's one of the very few seven point fives I've given. So, you know, top guard prospect probably of the last, you know, seven years or so with that mark margin so uh that's where nelson was he was he was like a three point five. so here's my first question for you and i i was just looking at this joe burrow is your 16th overall prospect and he's going to be the number one overall pick in the draft given that that you have him 16th on your board why even draft him number one considering that a, a guy like two is more talented and and there's, there's 15 players that, that you have graded higher than him as a football player. Right, so this is kind of the perfect uh, the perfect case of positional value and how important the quarterback is. So I have uh, Joe Burr at the 7th, um, which, which is a guy that could probably make multiple pro bowlers and a top 10 player in any draft um, to where that stacks up. So I don't think this is as strong as a quarterback class as like a, like a 2018. Um, so so Joe Burrow gets the nod because um, he's a quarterback. So that value is going to push you up a little bit. And so I've been like right in the similar grade as like a Baker Mayfield with Deshaun Watson coming out. Um, so definitely worthy of that pick. And and this is something too is if you have the number one pick, Daryl is with a quarterback. It's really it's really all or nothing. And the way I explain that is if if you need a quarterback and he's a top four quarterback, you should take him. And because if he busts, you couldn't have possibly underdrafted him so much to where it's worth it. So if he's a bust, you know, you know, pick any bust quarterback you want, they get traded for like a like a seventh round pick or sixth round pick in a few years. Like a Johnny Manziel, if Johnny Manziel got cut, no, no, no one picked him up. You couldn't, you know, salvage that. And then if you hit on a quarterback, is, I mean, you couldn't have possibly overdrafted him. So, so Patrick Mahomes could not have been overdrafted. Now, um, guys, guys like that. So it, it, it doesn't matter once you have them. You know, you couldn't trade him for anyone to get that value back. So you wouldn't so so you wouldn't trade Patrick Mahomes for even ten first round picks even. I wouldn't do it. Um, you wouldn't trade like Russell Wilson for five first round picks. I mean be, because you want that QB, you build everything around him. He's that important to the team. So you couldn't have possibly overdrafted him at the hip. So it's really is if you need a quarterback you take the top Q, QB if you're in that range like the Bengals and the Chargers and, and, and the Dolphins because if he's bust, it doesn't matter where where you take him. It, it, it just you, you won't get that value back. If you hit on him, you know, you got your guy for ten years and there's no value that you can put on that. That's the name of the game. You gotta get a quarterback wherever you get him. So that's kind of the way I kind of see quarterback play. Well, how many sevens are there as a quarterback year to year? Like, you have two at a six, 
point eight, and I'm only assuming that's because of injury. So if two is healthy, absolutely. So let's even just say injury withstanding two is a seven, right? How how many sevens come out year to year? Maybe one or two a year. So you know, over like a like a three year span, like you'll get a guy that's like a you know over like a three year span, like you'll get like a four or five total. Because then once he gets into the NFL, like ultimately, you know, you're competing and, and you say, like, okay, so like where would you put, you know, at his prime of his career, you know, let's take a Joe Burrow, for example. So if, if he's kind of like what we think he is and like a really solid player, accuracy, competitive, you know, you start to think where is he going to be with the Cincinnati Bengals in three years? So is he going to be better than Lamar Jackson, than Deshaun Watson? and Texas Mahomes, Russell Wilson, and then you start seeing, okay, you know, he's around probably like a number 10 ranked QB, like a Matt Ryan type of guy, um, eventually. And also with that, too, another point to make is with QB play, too, is it's a large part on where you go, man. It's a large part on the coaching situation, the guys around you, how you build your team around the QB. So, you know that could dictate, you know, your success or failure in the NFL, too. Um, but the only reason I moved Tua down was, um, obviously, I don't have access to the medicals and stuff, but uh, there is a red flag with his injury. So um, that's something to monitor. But if he didn't have that, you know, really strong player out of Alabama, definitely flashed as a guy like a, like a Baker Mayfield, like a Sean Watson, a Cam Newton in college. You know, he's on that level. Tua is on that level of those you know, guys over the past decade or so. So, you know, solid seven to be a top ten QB in the league. Now, when you also go to Chase Young, you have Chase Young at a 7.9 defensive end pass rusher out of Ohio State. And just to go back to the conversation with Burrow being going number one in comparison to a Chase Young, how big of a gap is a 7-9, or even say he's an 8? You're saying if he basically does the combine, he's an 8. So an 8 to a 7, like... That is a, a a whole point. Is that how, how big of a gap is that? So that's a gap where that's a gap of so 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 the difference there is um, bust potential is so low. So so the bust potential on Chase Young, you know, pending pending some injury, which no one can see, it's really hard to see where Chase Young is going to bust at. I mean, he's just such a such a talented athlete, talented pass rusher, beat you a multitude of ways. Um, having a guy that could kind of just aggravate the quarterback, you know, 10 plus backs every year, probably around that 15 mark, um, perennial pro bowler, kind of, kind of that type of player. So, like, that eight is, you know, when you get to the NFL and get better, like Chase Young, Aaron Donald, J.J. Watt, that's kind of the player you're taking a look at down to a down to like a seven which is you know multiple year pro bowl or two but not like on the verge of like maybe like an all decade type team so um you know a guy like a like a jj watt right now or he was a few years ago in Aaron Donald at that level so you know i think you're taking a look at a guy that could be you know one of the highest paid guys in the league top player and those those, you know, 7.9 or 8, 
those guys are all decade players. Those guys are, you know, pushing on Hall of Fame level, um, stuff like that. So next, what I would ask you: How high does the discrepancy does the discrepancy have to be? for Chase Young to go number one instead of Joe Burrow. So, like, l- l- let's say if Joe Burrow's not in this draft class, I mean, Tua's hurt, so let's even take out Tua. You have Jordan Love at a 6.8. Does Jordan Love go number one if he's the number one overall quarterback? L- l- like, w- w- when does the discrepancy become too much where you're like, no, Chase Young won? Right, so I, I, I think the, um, I think the QB would probably have to be on the verge of, like, a like a 7.0 and up to warrant that pick over Chase Young. Um, so let's let's think of a, let's think of a, uh, an example here. So let's go back to the 2014 draft, which I'm watching right now. I need to stand in the background. So um, you could have done, you know, we really need a QB like the Jacksonville Jaguars and reach for a guy probably similar like Jordan Love. Like Jordan Love's very talented. It's going to depend on his. It could depend on if he can fix his accuracy. Stuff like that to depend on needs to be like a like a Mahomes or a Deshaun Kaiser type. So if it's, it's that amount of risk you have, kind of that type of player. So it's like saying like Blake Bortles or, you know, Clowney or Cleo Mack off the edge. And in that case, you know, you don't want to force it at QB because you make that decision and you you know, we could talk about all the bucks we want. You know, if, if, if you stretch and reach for a QB and he doesn't turn out and you spend a, you know, a number one pick on him, you know, your team's crippled. Um, so in that case, you know, it, it, it's better to build the team around, you know, Chase Young, select, you know, draft picks, as many top players as possible, keep your flexibility open so when the iron's hot and you get that guy that you want to trade up for, you, you have enough picks to do that or... Uh, you know, maybe you luck into a situation like Dallas. Like, you hit on Dak Prescott, you know, like a, like a middle-round player. You build a team around him. You build a system, and he does really well. And you have a pretty good team with a QB under a rookie contract over the last few years. So stuff like that. But um, I would have to say you have to be like a seven. Like, you have to be pretty certain, you know, your, your QB can make multiple pro bowlers in the respective conference to take him over the surefire number one pick. The surefire number one pick, like a like a Nick Bosa, Kate Young, Miles Garrett type of player like that. Now you have Jordan Love also and two at six point eight. I believe the differ uh, what, what differentiates both of them is the the fact that two is just a better quarterback and the health obviously. So I want to go to Justin Herbert. Jo- Jordan Love is ahead of Justin Herbert. If you told people that coming into the draft, they would have looked at you like you were crazy. Uh. And it also looks like that Justin Herbert will could be drafted ahead of Tua, for, you know, for all we know right now. What are your concerns about Herbert? How, do you like him? Do you not? Like, what does a love have over him in a Tua? So yeah, yeah. So so, so there's a couple of things. Um, so with Herbert, the things that you would have to kind of uh, mitigate and be careful on is is one is. Um, We'll start with his offense at Oregon. So his offense at Oregon was a lot of one read stuff, a lot of quick bubble screens, big bubble screens go up top. Um, that type of spread offense doesn't really translate well to the NFL. So, so like you want to be in like one with 
multiple field regression, um, kind of go through the way an NFL QB does. So that's the first thing, is a little bit of a concern with this offense. It's really simple. Um, it takes some time to translate that. The second thing with Herbert is, um, you know, he is six foot six. A lot of, you know, once you get to six foot six, like you start getting up into a realm where a lot of QBs six foot six and taller. I, I saw um, really haven't had too much success in the NFL too. So not sure if that's kind of like just a small sample or anomaly or whatnot. But that's something that 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 concerns me as well. And then the third thing too is with Herbert is you know so. You go into, like, a situation, like, wherever you might get drafted, and, you know, let's say Herbert goes to the, the AFC West. So, you know, if you're looking at QBs in the future and stuff like that, I just have a hard time seeing how, you know, Justin Herbert is going to beat out Patrick Mahomes. He's going to beat out whoever the Raiders have at quarterback, like Derek Carr, if they go with Jordan Love or Tua, like, like, like that, and then you also have a team that's building a decent core um, in Denver with their skill position. So, so stuff like that, it's kind of hard to see, okay, so if you kind of see how a quarterback's going to have success, I, I, I just never got enamored with Justin Herbert as a guy that could elevate guys around him and be a guy, you know, that could make, you know, uh, that could make the playoffs multiple years and get into the dance and go like that. Maybe going like a trajectory, like uh, maybe an occasional playoff, maybe like a like a uh, Jake Locker or a Blaine Gabbert type, um, Ryan Tannehill type, so stuff like that. So you would still take him. He has upside, um, a little bit limited though, and he's going to have to go into a situation that has um, a lot of good things around him. No. And and, and 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 Jordan Love is a little bit better off script, out of structure. So when the pocket breaks down, he makes more plays, kind of like ad lib stuff that is needed. And, um, you know, it can help move the chains and you can have success like that. Um, so George, George, Jordan Love makes better plays out of structure than Justin Herbert does too. Now, it looks like your number one class, the number one position group here is wide receiver, correct? Yeah. So I ended up putting seven seven guys in round one as a wide receiver. And I know a few teams, uh, you can kind of see, like, reports in leagues, you know, some have, like, five, some have, like, eight or nine even. So I I went with seven. And it, would, would your second be offensive tackle? Yeah, so I have four, four solid guys in round one, Worth, Will, Beckton, Thomas. And then some guys at the end of round one that have some potential I like, like Austin Jackson in an outside zone scheme would be pretty good, really athletic. He's the youngest player in the draft, too, only 20 years old. Um, and then Josh Jones, too, a sturdy, sturdy style left tackle as well. So kind of those six for solid first-round tackles, end of round one tackle. So that's probably the second strongest position group. Now, I, I do want to go back to wide receiver. You have Judy over C.D. Lamb, uh, just by point one. Uh, and actually, you have C.D. Lamb tied with Henry Ruggs. So, I'm assuming right now you have C.D. Lamb as 
uh, the one A to Ruggs's one B. Why? Why does Judy have that point one over both of them? And uh, because because a lot of people think some people think Ceedee Lamb's better. So so what makes Jerry Judy a little bit better than both of those guys? And you also have Ruggs a little bit higher than I would have thought as well. Yeah. So so you know, um, at some point you got to put your foot in the ground and make a decision on um, on these rankings. So you know. It's just not good practice. It's just not just not the right thing to do. It's not fair to just blanket statement all these guys. You know, all them just seven. So, so I made a statement. Um, I said Jerry Judy is the best receiver in the draft. Um, so I put him in a notch above to stick by that. And then Lamb is the second one, best best one, and stick to that. The reason why Judy is slightly higher than Henry than than Lamb is uh, better route runner to beat you different ways than C.D. Lamb. So C.D. Lamb, really good jump balls, those athletic situations. Judy could do that as well, but he's also a really good route runner. He has a Ph.D. in route running. Phenomenal route runner. So so I think he could win on the deep route, and I think he could run uh, uh, beat you as a technician too. So that's why I have Judy a little bit above C.D. Lamb as well. Also, C.D. Lamb uh, one match a little bit below just because he didn't really go up against solid press corners in the Big 12 like you do in the SEC, so that's a little bit of a risk a risk that you got to factor in as well. Uh, Ruggs, I like a lot, so I put Lamb a little bit ahead of Ruggs, just, just in that on that board, uh, two and three, um, because I, I have like a personal preference toward bigger wide receivers, so 6'2", 208 for C.D. Lamb, Henry Ruggs, 5'11", about 190. Um, however, you know, he Ruggs has a solid seven point two grade as well because I think in the right situation he could really be a number one receiver like a Tyreek Hill, uh, something. I mean, just 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 picture him in that offense if he were to get picked by San Francisco. So now San, San Francisco has their solid guy that could go on uh, clear the top off the defense, um, really good hands. So see, uh, so so Ruggs is not just a one trick pony. Good hands runs routes really well, um, and just having that dynamic in the right situation uh, could move him up to a solid number one receiver in the NFL. Uh, so, like the example there is picture him in San Francisco. Um, so stuff like that is why he still gets a really solid grade as well. And then right below him is Justin Jefferson, uh, just, just a notch below it, a 7.1. And Justin Jefferson, really complete wide receiver too, really high on this kid, you know, I would have to say, I think I have him uh, like 16th or 17th overall. Um, he's that type of player that I think is a top 20 player. He gets drafted there tomorrow somewhere in the top 20. How many number one wide receivers are in this draft? Um, like number one, like when, when they get into, um, like when they get Like how many guys five years from now, when we talk about them, we'll say that that's the number one wide receiver on their team. Okay, so there's about, so I have about seven going round one, and then um, over the past few years, round two wide receivers have fared better. Um, so, you know, let's say you have seven in round one, let's say three hit, less than 50%. So you have three right there, and then I'm just going off some averages and probabilities. Um, and then you have, you know, a few in um, round two that might hit. So I'm going to say about five. 
I think you have five that could be, you know, that solid number one wide receiver, get, you know, 10 plus tar- targets a game. Um, is in that number one tier with like Michael Thomas and Hill and Julio Jones and Beckham and stuff like that. Um, so I think that would be a pretty strong case to be made about five of those. Now, when it comes, and you mentioned Justin Jefferson too, right? And, and we've talked about Burrow. There are so many LSU guys that you have uh, high grades on, like just off the top of my head as I'm looking at this. There's Burrow, there's Jefferson, there's Patrick Queen, there's Chris Fulton. There Chazon is. Jason and Delphit? Yeah, Delphit, Jason. But with so much talent, and you're forgetting guys like uh, Chase, the, the other wide receiver that, that's there, their uh, offensive line was the best offensive line in college football. How do you. To kind of delegate that, and I also think they have another corner that that's supposed to be really good in a couple of years as well. So how do you delegate that with so much talent, and, and worry about when you have a super team, and everybody's good? It's kind of fine. It's kind of hard to find like who's the weak link, who's getting exposed. Right. So I think with that is you kind of have to take um, so kind of take each prospect on just um, like a case by case basis and kind of see, okay, so when they go to the combine, do they meet the minimum threshold that positions for like height, weight, speed, um, what elite traits do they have in terms of length or ball skills or route running, like just like Jefferson's a elite route runner. Burrow, elite, you know, elite accuracy on deep ball, stuff like that. So, so, so you're seeing if they have those traits, you're seeing kind of, where they stack up in the position group, like when you have like a big database of data on, you know, like your percentile of speed and jumping and uh, like that. Um, and then taking a look at the tape and treating each one individually. So I think if you go off, you know, like the success of Chris Fulton, I think he gave up 40% completion percentage, really good number. Um, you could kind of see that lineage with Fulton to Greedy Williams, to Patrick Peterson, to, 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 uh, to various White, and kind of see it's, uh, it's, it's almost the same player in the helmet over the years getting plugged in the same situation like that. So you have that to lean on as well. Um, Patrick Queen, the example of Patrick Queen. Uh, Patrick Queen was a sideline-to-sideline tackler, and I think he was quickly, as the year went on, he made that playoff run. Um, he was one of their best defensive players, too. So having that trait, and seeing how it matches to the next level. So, you know, speed at linebacker is a key. Patrick Queen has that. He ran 4-5-5, really good tackler in space. Um, gets that, you know, 6.9 grade. So, um, still stick with it um, case by case. But, yeah, when you play with good players, it's going to elevate your game too. Um, but I think if you look at a case by case basis, you could uh, – Now, my last question for you is this. When you finished your big board after this, these months of hard work, what was your biggest surprise? Were there some guys that you thought would be a little bit higher higher than others, or were there some guys that were a little lower than others in kind of your hierarchy and the way you went through your process? Like, what were your biggest shocks and takeaways? Uh, the biggest shock is shock I had is I was really shocked when I put together my board is I counted up 
how many wide receivers I have around one, two, and three grade. So a day one or a day two. And I think I had let me do this as we're talking. I think it I think I had twenty. And let me just cross check that really quickly. Uh twenty three. So twenty three wide receivers around uh a day one or a day two grade. So that's like uh that's like a quarter of the draft right there. Um and, and just being like in the right situation, this is a you know such a talented group that in the right spot, you know they could have you know solid careers in where they go. So that was the first thing, and then I think the other uh, the second takeaway that I had is when I really looked at it, the edge class has a lot of names, but I'm not sure how much upper echelon talent it has. So yeah, Chase Young, obviously. Very good. Um, but I have Chase on and Gross Matos as round one players. And then after that, you know, pass rusher is such an important position is, you know, you're kind of taking a little bit of a leap with everybody else. Even you can make a case with like Gross Mat- Matos too. Um, so after like those three, Young, Chase on and Gross Matos, is you're you're, you know, um, beauty's in the eye of the beholder, and you're making a leap with guys with, you know, round two grades like Epinesa, he has pros and cons. Terrell Lewis, injury prone. Zach Bond, pros and cons. And it, it's not as strong as a class where, you know, you could picture these guys coming into any team, starting at defensive end, being, you know, a quality player on that team, and, you know, solid eight to ten sacks a year. Um, I don't know if that exists, so hopefully if you needed an edge rusher, you address that in free agency and you weren't depending on your draft. I think there's a lot of good players. Not sure how many great players are at edge rusher, though. Thank you, Kenny, for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's finally here, so, you know, it's going to be interesting to see where all these guys go starting tomorrow and on day two. So thanks for having me again. And once again, I want to thank Kenny Sim for coming on the show. Appreciate it. We will do a deep dive probably uh, Thursday night after the draft. Then we'll probably release it on Friday sometime. But thank you, everybody, for tuning into this episode, the 152nd episode of Barbershop Sports Talk.